Welcome to Sparks 538's Science Podcast, where we read interesting science writing and talk about the big ideas behind it. I'm science editor Blythe Terrell, and this is part two of this month's podcast. In part one, our science team discussed the U.S. healthcare system through the lens of Elizabeth Rosenthal's new book, An American Sickness. Now in part two, 538's lead health writer, Anna Maria Barry Jester, interviews Rosenthal herself. Enjoy. So thanks for joining me, Elizabeth. Oh, it's great to be here. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah, me too, um, especially these days. So <laughs> you've been writing about the problems and inefficiencies, shall we call them, in our healthcare system for years, and you're also a physician. I'm <laughs> I'm assuming when you started this book, it was a little bit in advance of the 2016 election season. You didn't really know that there would necessarily be this big political debate again about healthcare. Um, so the, the, but the current debate is really largely centered on insurance coverage again and who will pay for it, which is similar to what the Affordable Care Act did. Your book, though, really looks into this larger question of why our healthcare is so expensive in the first place. And I, I wonder if you have thoughts on why we're not addressing those cost issues head on in the U.S. Well, I think we started to address them. I mean, the Affordable Care Act was called affordable, which at some level was a misnomer. The Affordable Care Act did a lot of really, really important things. But one reason I really felt I needed to write the book was because none of the acts, whether they be the Affordable Care Act or whatever the GOP will try and replace it with, are addressing what's a really central question is, why are our prices so high? How do we control the costs and prices? And at some level, I feel like our healthcare system is like a Rubik's Cube and the pieces won't fit together unless you address that very, very central issue. Yeah. And, you know, you have all these stories and anecdotes in the book about people getting, you know, sort of hurt or lost or losing their financial resources through our health system. Their stories are really compelling. And it's hard not to walk away from the book feeling like the whole thing is pretty broken. Um, But, you know, you end the book with these very specific instructions for how readers and patients can sort of do their part um, to the you know, get cost down for the collective healthcare system, but also for their, you know, their own selves, their own um, healthcare. And I wondered why you approached it that way. What it is that, um, what, like, why you think why patients can be the ones to change things? Well, I don't want to put the onus on patients, but I do want to say that patients have been kind of complacent as this system has evolved in this really awful, messy direction. So we've let the insurers have a say. We've let the hospitals, pharma, device makers, everyone has a seat at the table except the poor patients who are ultimately bearing the cost of all of these decisions. And I guess what impelled me first to look at healthcare again in this way was that you know, there was all this dialogue going on in Washington about healthcare systems, and yet what I was hearing from patients who were watching this play out on their lives and on their health, and most importantly, on their personal finances was, you know, whoa, you know, this just isn't working for me. This is really unbearable. And as a reporter, I was collecting these stories, and they're they're heartbreaking, you know. And I think the yeah. thing is, what I really wanted to get across is even if this person isn't you right now. A lot of people have been very complacent about health care because maybe they've had good insurance or they haven't had a big health problem. But you could be in a different position tomorrow. And I think everyone has a tendency to say, oh, I, you know, health care works for me, or they used to have a tendency to say that. 
until they had an interaction with the health system. And then they would suddenly discover, oh, my God, uh, you know, why am I getting this bill for $15,000? I mean, I have this experience over and over again when I was at the Times where people who'd been relatively healthy would have their first hospital stay, and they knew I was covering this stuff, and they would come over to my desk with this stack of bills, you know, two inches high, and go, I don't understand this. What do I have to pay? This is terrible. And yeah. So, so I think, you know, this is about all of us. The, the patients in the book have been uh, – to use a, a word, um, screwed in one way or another. <laughs> um, yeah. But they're us. And they're, you know, that this kind of system, even if we're not being directly impacted right now, it's why our premiums are going up. It's why our deductibles are going up, why we're suddenly getting these co-payments and out-of-network bills. It really is about all of us. And that's what I hoped people would understand. Yeah, well, and you, I mean, when you say us, I mean, you have stories about your own family in the book, including one about your daughter, and you kind of compare it with a similar situation that a family in California was dealing with. Um, so the basics were, if I understand correctly, are that there was a brain tumor detected and you both, you know, both you, your family and this other family were advised to stay in the hospital and have emergency surgery. The family in California followed the hospital's advice, which, you know, I think a lot of us would. Um, but you called some neurosurgeons and learned that surgery for brain tumors basically doesn't need to be emergency surgery, that a lot of the tumors are benign. So your daughter ended up having the surgery a couple weeks later, and the whole thing was much less expensive as a result. You know, I wondered if you could talk through what happened there, how you how you made that decision to call for advice. Like, was that scary or intimidating? Um, and, you know, or have you just learned that you should always question hospitals? Well, in that case, it was before really my antenna were up to this issue and how much of our care is motivated by the financial arrangements. Um, in that case, it was um, the advice my daughter was getting. I was overseas on a work trip at that time, but the advice oh, that wow. that that um, my husband and daughter were getting, it didn't pass the smell test. You know, she'd been perfectly healthy, um, had a had a problem at school, and then this, uh, what turned out to be a benign brain tumor was diagnosed. And they said, oh, it has to come out right away. And I thought, this sounds weird to me. So I started calling around more because I thought, uh, this doesn't sound right. And hey, you know, I trained as a physician. I know lots of neurologists and neurosurgeons. So I, I could do that. And I think the thing for me is most patients wouldn't feel, um, empowered enough or knowledgeable right. enough to do that. And I think that's where I think we have to shift our thinking. You really have to ask a lot of questions. And I think you have to be attuned to the non-medical forces that may be influencing your care. When someone just says, you know, if you have a sprained knee and someone says, hmm, I think we better do surgery or we better get an MRI right away, part of your brain should be saying, hmm, you know, who's making money from that scan? Do I really need surgery right away? Shouldn't maybe I wait for six weeks and see what happens? So I think, you know, one of the, the, the messages for patients is our society and our healthcare system is all in kind of quick pounce mode. And that's partly 
responding to patients who have this, I want to know what it is, doc. You know, I want to know right now. We're a very impatient society. And Mm -hmm. one of the techniques in medicine is always watchful waiting, like let's see what happens. So, um, and on the the provider side, um, the impulse to do things quickly is often financially motivated. You know, we're going to make money if we do surgery or get a scan. And there's not a lot of money to be made in saying, let's see if it gets better in a week. You know, that's just, there's no profit there. Yeah. And it seems like it requires sort of a real paradigm shift on the part of patients, both not that they maybe no longer can just exclusively rely on, you know, physicians and hospitals to tell them what's going on, but also um, being a little bit more patient, which is is a pretty fundamental shift from the system we have right now. It is. I mean, you know, we want to know, I I go through this endlessly with people, you know, their knee will hurt and they'll say, I want to know, is it the ligament or the tendon or the cartilage? And at some level, to begin with, it kind of doesn't matter if it's not a bad injury. You just you just want it to get better. But I think also um, people need to start asking more questions. I think that's a really important message here. And that will not change our health system, but it may make doctors think twice about why they're ordering something. You know, one of the things when I went through medical school, which was a while ago now, is uh, medicine was pretty cheap then. And we had this attitude. I worked in an emergency room for a few years. And there was always this attitude of, why not get an x-ray? Why not get this blood test? And I think now as a patient, when things are expensive, when you're paying out of pocket, you're entitled to ask why. You know, mm-hmm. why Why do we need this? How is it going to influence my care? And you know what? Oftentimes, the doctor, if it's a good physician, which most are, it will cause them to think, well, maybe I don't need to know this right now. You know, maybe let's just order one test instead of three or wait and not order that scan today. Right. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up that, that you know, things have not always been where they are today. And you bring a lot of history into the book, which is really interesting. Um, and so, you know, there are these stories about how our insurance companies came to be medical societies that became more about profit than profession, and, you know, they, different origins than where they are today. So many examples. Um, But one history you delve into a little bit involves pharmaceutical patents, um, Mm -hmm. and that's a topic that's been a lot, you know, in the news a lot the last few years. And you describe sort of several key medicines, like the polio vaccine, most famously, that were developed with public funds and they weren't patented. And, you know, it's hard to imagine that they wouldn't be patented today and that they wouldn't be much more costly as a result. You know, I wonder if you have a sense when we're talking especially about drug prices, if this is something that we need new legislation to deal with or if there are ways that patients can help push that, you know, push the costs in a different direction. Well, I think there are several things that could be done, and this is why I have the second part of the book, which is about, well, what can we do? Because I think part of the problem at this point is we look at this health system, it's so dysfunctional and so overpriced, and people are just so frustrated, they think, you know, what can I do? I'm just one person, or what can we do? This is hopeless. Um, And Mm -hmm. it's really not. I mean, we can address this piece by piece, individually and collectively. Um, and I think one of the things that really needs to be looked at again is patent law and how we patent pharmaceuticals. There's um, There are a lot of what I call patent games that go on with pharmaceuticals. Okay, mm-hmm. you test it for pediatric use and you get another 
six months of exclusivity. Um, you might test an old drug that had never been previously tested for safety and efficacy. I like the example of colchicine, very, very old drug, hundreds of years old, and it had never mm -hmm. gone through official FDA testing. Um, so the FDA, in its understandably said to companies, okay, if you will test it up to our standards, we'll give you three years of patent exclusivity. Um, a, a good example is colchicine, which is hundreds of years old. It's a And drug. that's to treat gout, is yeah. that right? Yeah. Colchicine treats gout, um, which is an inflammation, a kind of arthritic inflammation generally of a toe. Um, it it's hundreds of years old. It had never been tested for that reason up to FDA standards for safety and efficacy. There weren't really indications that there was any problem with colchicine, but the FDA understandably said to uh, companies, we'd really like to have everything tested up to our standards, up to our modern standards. So they offered companies a deal. If you do this testing, we'll give you three years of patent exclusivity or market exclusivity on the drug. So a company took up the offer, tested it. Guess what? You know, there wasn't really much of a problem, if any. And Presto, this drug that had cost pennies, was suddenly going for, I think, over a dollar, maybe up to $5 a pill. So, yeah. and it was rebranded as Cole Chris, you know, it had a name, there was a, you know, marketing. So, you know, I think we really need to rethink patents. We have a lot of Me Too drugs that get the same patent protection as the real innovator drugs. That doesn't feel right if we think of patents as rewards for innovation. So I think, you know, pharmaceutical companies have learned to game this system just as banks learn to game the financial regulation system. So I think we have to put a stop to that in some way. I'm not a patent lawyer. Um, I don't work at the patent office or the FDA. But I think we have to acknowledge that not all drugs are equally valuable and deserve equal patent protection. Right. And you also kind of point out that some of these laws were passed or written in a very different time, you know, before we had things like software. I mean, you know, they, they're just it, the situations under which they were passed and understood are so fundamentally different from the situation we have today. Yes. And I think, you know, if you set up a system for approving drugs and giving companies that are, in the end, for-profit companies, opportunities for market exclusivity, you're asking for the kind of behavior we see. It's all pretty predictable. You know, we here at Kaiser Health News did a series on the orphan drug process and how that's been misused by companies for profit. You know, and, and mm -hmm. hey, they're, they're for-profit. This is kind of what they're supposed to be doing for their shareholders. I would say also on the patient side, when patients feel helpless about this, um, we need, really need to focus more. We tend to focus on why isn't my insurance reimbursing me for this? You know, mm -hmm. why are they, why won't they pay for this drug? I think we also need to ask the question, why does it cost so much? Why does this drug, this inhaler, which costs, uh, $50 in France costs $300 here. And that's an important question. And we tend to blame, and, and certainly insurers have certain things that they can be blamed for, but we tend to get angry at the insurers for not reimbursing us for this stuff instead of at the pharmaceutical manufacturer for pricing it 
in the United States at two, three, four, five times what it costs in other countries. I have one person I, I, uh, I interviewed who paid for his Paris vacation each year by buying his inhalers in France. <laughs> I mean, that's just incredible. It really is incredible. It's um, not a bad and, strategy. <laughs> I, <have to> <laughs> I was going to say that's that's <laughs> ingenious, actually. Um, uh, you know, so another bit of history brought in here are these, which I it's so funny because it's like couldn't be a more dry topic, and yet it's incredibly fascinating. Are these ICD ten codes and medical codes that are used for billing? So you know they've become a big. You explain how they become a big part of how hospitals, um, in particular sort of upcharge. There's a code for absolutely everything. And now there's an empire of professionals who use those codes to charge for as much as they can. But the coding system was built for epidemiological purposes, right? To classify and track diseases. And that's how it's still used in most of the world. Is that right? Yeah. So the coding system was originally an epidemiological construct. You know, it was uh, originated at the time of the plague where different countries speaking different languages wanted to track the movement of diseases. It's only in the U.S., as with everything, that it becomes totally commercialized. What I think is amusing is the newest version of the ICD code, which underlies our billing, has been used in the rest of the world for about 20 years now. It's called ICD-10. It took 20 extra years to get it implemented in the U.S. because billers didn't want to change to it and doctors and hospitals didn't want to change to it because you can imagine that means you have to change all the billing software the coders have to learn new codes it's a you know it it created a business nightmare for the US yeah it was like billed as a sort of ap- apocalypse you know it was like the 2000s when everyone thought their <laughs> computer right was i always like to compare dive. it to the the fears around that y2k you know people were like oh no if we go to icd10 um, you know, we won't be able to function. Uh, the real worry was, of course, we'll, we won't be able to capture revenue as well. Right, exactly. Because we'll have to learn this. But guess what? I think at some point in, I think it was the end of 2015, uh, President Obama put down his foot and said, okay, it's happening. And guess what? The sky didn't fall the next morning and collections were up and I just got a, I just got a new study from Medscape this morning showing that physician income is up again for 2016. So um, ICDN did not create the financial freefall that the medical profession worried about. The the system in the U.S. always seems to find a way. Um. (laughs) It's incredibly agile, and that's part of the problem, I think, that we have CMS trying to tamp down on the abuse and fraud. But it's a pretty slow-moving ship compared to the agility of the tens of thousands of providers out there who are always finding new ways to bill and new things to bill for. And eventually, the government kind of catches up and says, sends a warning letter, says, you know, that's not really okay, or, hey, that feels a little bit like fraud, cease and desist. And the industry is mostly like, oh, okay, and they stop that and find something new. So I feel like the government is always kind of two steps behind this incredibly nimble industry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you paint a pretty clear picture of that. And you know, I'm some, I'm always p- sort of perpetually interested in the ways that data can be power. And this seems like a pretty clear example where this sort of complicated, convoluted coding system gives hospitals power over patients. So people end up with these incomprehensible 20-page bills. And I, I you know, I it's, it's really 
it really is a challenge for patients to even understand what are in these bills and, you know, to get real answers. You know, even they're entitled to a bill that that is, um, you know, itemized and tells them what they're being charged for. And yet that can be an incredibly difficult thing to do. So, I, I, you know, I'd love to hear again sort of what it is that you think patients can do to push back on that within the system we have right now. Well, the billing issue is really hard. And one thing I, that always amuses me is uh, you look at a hip replacement bill in the U.S. and it will tend to be, if you get it itemized, dozens of pages long in codes, in medical abbreviations, uh, in things that no mortal could possibly understand. I have a similar bill for a hip replacement in Belgium, and it's one page long. And you can understand exactly what you're paying for, even though it's in Flemish. You know, it's like two-person comer, uh, implantin, and it's all clearly listed. Um, so I think... At some level, you're stuck with these bills. I always think people should ask for itemized bills. I always should think they should ask, okay, what do those codes mean? Tell me what that code's about. Because you will find things on your bill that A, didn't happen, or B, are billed at such outrageous rates that you may want to question them, especially if you're paying um, a deductible and some of it is coming out of your pocket. I, I mean, you know if you got oxygen in your room every day, your insurer doesn't. So I, I think it really behooves patients to get those bills, to have a look at them, and to reality test them because your insurer wasn't in the room. You were. The other thing I think is really important to do, and, and you know, you should know as you look at these bills, when they're putting that little green tube of oxygen in your nose after surgery for two days that, you know, falls out immediately and blows the oxygen into the pillow, you're being charged by 15-minute segments for that. So, you know, question it. But also I think practical things that you can do that I now do when I go into a hospital is to say right up front, okay, I'm going to an in-network hospital. I want all of my providers to be in-network. Yeah, that was a really compelling um, piece of advice you offered and, and just making that clear up front so that there was no question with the hospital that you were very aware of this situation and you want you really wanted all in-network physicians. Right. And some states now have laws that will protect you from those charges officially. Even in states that don't, I think you can say, look, I wrote on my financial consent form that I only wanted in-network providers. So, hey, insurer, hey, hospital, you guys negotiate this. You didn't give me a choice. So, you know, informed consent is a bedrock principle of medical care, right? You sign those forms. I understand that the, uh, you know, this medicine or this surgery may cause, you know, death, destruction, allergic reactions. But we don't have a bedrock financial informed consent, which is kind of crazy to me because, it's really part of medical care. And hey, we like to say your health is priceless, but if you can't afford it um, or if it's going to throw you into bankruptcy, you should be able to talk about that ahead of time and negotiate. Yeah, your health is priceless, but your health care is not. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so you, you offered a lot of advice to patients. I'm wondering if you, there's things you think that doctors could or should be doing. Yeah, I think doctors have to get... Um, what, what we journalists would call sourced up about pricing and about prices in their area. I want to be able to go to my physician. And when my physician says you need an x-ray of your elbow, I want to be able to say to him or her, 
okay, which facilities in this area do you trust that will do this for the lowest cost? They should know that, and they don't generally. They don't know that the hospital x-ray department may cost 10 times as much as the provider they trust just as much down the block in a smaller office. So I think physicians need to be attuned to these cost items. Um, Also, likewise, when they prescribe a drug, you know, one thing that makes me a little nuts is when the drug salesmen come into the office and say, oh, we've got this great new drug. It's good for pain and indigestion. Um, There's one mentioned in the book called Duexis. They don't say, oh, and it's going to cost your patient $1,000 a month. They, They just say it's great. It's convenient. So I think doctors need to wise up about hey, what am I prescribing? How much does it cost? And I think likewise, drug ads should probably say what this product costs. The drug salesman should probably have to say something about the list price of the drug. I mean, a lot of doctors call me and say, you know, I prescribed this to my patient and I had no idea this tube of acne cream was now selling for $1,000. It used to be really cheap. So they're caught, they're as caught off guard as everyone else. But I think they can wise up. They do have control because they can say, I'm not going to prescribe this if you're going to charge it this way. Or I'm not going to operate at your hospital if you insist on billing patients this way. So, you know, I feel like there's been some really great journalism from you, certainly, and others over the last 10 years or so about a lot of these problems. One of the things I wondered as I was reading the book is, like, is there a breaking point when things just get so expensive that our system has to change? Are we there? (laughs) Um, You know? Well, I keep thinking we're at the breaking point, and then we go a little past it. So I'm not sure exactly where it is, but we're pretty close if we're not there. I, I hear a lot from families who are now spending 20 to 30% of their income on health care costs. And these are pretty healthy families. They're, this is insurance, co-pays, deductibles. It's without even a major illness. That's more than they spend on their mortgage or food. So, you know, no other country asks that of patients. And I think we have to define what's a reasonable amount of people's financial resources to spend on health care. The other kind of hopeful signal, I mean, it's this is kind of the worse, the better signal, is that when you look at the town hall meetings over the last couple of months, what are people talking about? They're talking about health care. They're asking about uh, what are you going to do because this is too expensive for me. I'm sick. I'm worried about my insurance. Everyone was oddly silent during the campaign about health care, and now you hear people screaming all over the country and in a lot of red states, too, about, gosh, this is unsupportable for me. So I think we're there. I think during the election, and part of what I hope to do with this book and what we all as journalists, I know you down there, too, help hope to do, is to connect the policy issues in Washington with people's lives. I think during the election, people didn't quite understand that when they heard repeal and replace, that would affect them so intimately and so directly. And I think now what they're getting and what I hope we're all emphasizing is how these policy decisions in Washington on health care that seem very obscure and confusing really affect people's day-to-day lives and their pocketbooks and their health. And I think for most Americans, health has become a pocketbook issue, and that's what people vote on. So 
I do think we're at that tipping point for something better. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. So I'm sure we'll, I'm sure this is a conversation, unfortunately, we'll keep having, but I, that's a good place for us to stop. So thank you, Elizabeth Rosenthal, for, for joining us today. And um, thanks for this book. It's really excellent. Thank you so much. And um, I hope it really starts a national conversation on this because we certainly need one. All right. That was Anna Maria Barry Jester speaking with Elizabeth Rosenthal, author of An American Sickness. Thanks very much to our producers, Chadwick Matlin and Jody Avergan, and thanks to Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada for production assistance. Katie Ferguson was our editor. Thanks also to Randy Scott Carroll for help with this episode. The What's the Point music is by Hrishikesh Herway. I'm Blythe Terrell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>